0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can
3: expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: Coming up, using
3: randomness to test the weird world of quantum physics. It can, can only be checked if you have some way to, in some sense, surprise the particles.
0: And a simple flickering light reduces toxic proteins in mice with Alzheimer's.
4: That was the moment, it was just, I think it's a once in a lifetime <laughs> kind of experience.
2: Plus, the remote island that holds a burial ground for freed slaves. This is the Nature Podcast for December the 8th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy.
0: And I'm Kerry Smith. So Adam, here at the top of the show, I'm going to play you a video and I want you to describe for listeners what you can see. There isn't any sound, but here we go.
2: Okay, so there is a mouse running around, but what what's striking about this video is that there's a horrible flickering light uh, kind of governing everything on top of everything and then there's just a mouse running around in this weird disco.
0: Yeah, a tiny little box, like disco box.
2: Yeah, it's black and white disco for a mouse.
0: Great description. Now, the thing that might not be so obvious from this video is that this mouse has a genetic form of Alzheimer's disease. And the flickering light that you can see is reducing one of the hallmarks of the disorder, these buildups of protein plaques in the brain.
2: So you're saying every time I go clubbing, I'm actually reducing my risk of Alzheimer's?
0: Well, as always, it's not quite as straightforward as that. But luckily, I have two neuroscientists who are going to help me unpack the rest of the story. Neuroscientist number one has just published a paper with the mouse video attached to it. Her name is li Hui Tsai.
4: And I'm a professor of neuroscience and the director of the Picor Institute for Learning and Memory at MIT.
0: And neuroscientist number two is someone who's written a news and views about the paper. His name is Bruce Yankner, and I called him at his office at Harvard Medical School. So if you could just tell us perhaps what you had for breakfast today. Just going to make sure that the sound levels and all that stuff are okay.
5: Yes, I had the uh, Alzheimer prevention breakfast. An apple, mango, low-fat yogurt, and almonds.
0: Nice. What, what is, what's so preventative about that?
5: The almonds give you vitamin E. The low-fat yogurt gives you some calcium without saturated fat. And the apples and mangoes are full of antioxidants.
0: With some help from Bruce and Li Hui, I'll explain how and why the mouse came to be in the box. I told you the mouse had a genetic form of Alzheimer's, so let's start there. The hallmarks of the disease are these rogue clumps of a protein called amyloid beta that are thought to accumulate gradually and affect how the brain functions. That's what drug companies are trying to target, the amyloid protein that they think chokes neurons. But the brain is more than just a collection of neurons. It has lots of other cell types, all working together. And as for Alzheimer's, there could be a lot going wrong.
4: You know, I really think that it is a systems failure of the brain. This is
0: Li Hui Tsai.
4: Um, To better understand Alzheimer's disease, we really need to look at um, the network and look at brain circuits.
0: And not just the network, the roads if you like, but the traffic on the roads. So this
5: paper brings in a new dimension, which had been hinted at before, which is that it's not only the connections between brain cells, but how they fire their electrical activity that really could influence the spreading pathology and degeneration.
0: These firing patterns are called oscillations. They help choreograph brain activity across regions, and they come in a few different frequencies.
4: Oscillations um, have been shown to uh, be impaired in different neurological disorders. For instance, gamma oscillations have been shown to be reduced in patients with schizophrenia, autism, and certainly um, Alzheimer's disease.
0: But what could the waves be doing that could encourage Alzheimer's? Li Hui and her team decided to look at gamma waves in the brains of young mice with a gene mutation that would eventually give them Alzheimer's. The gamma oscillations in the brains of these mice were wonky, less powerful and less good at coordinating their neurons to fire. Then they thought, well, what would happen if we corrected them? So they used optogenetics, where neurons can be induced to fire using a light-sensitive protein inserted into them to artificially boost gamma power. And what happened?
4: When we can increase the power of gamma oscillations, then the amyloid can be um, very drastically reduced.
5: The paper suggests that the disruption of these patterns is not only a consequence of the disease, but actually can promote the disease.
4: We were very, very surprised and you know we just repeated this experiment over and over again because you know it was just very hard to believe.
0: So here's where we get back to that disco mouse.
4: You know, we got these results and then you know we, we just started to think that whether there's any anything we can do to, to make this more accessible to perhaps one day humans.
0: That light in the video flickering at 40 hertz is one way of prompting the brain's own gamma rhythms into action. So they gave it a
4: go. It sounded like a fairy tale, but, you know, it doesn't hurt to try.
0: They put the mice with the Alzheimer's gene into a box and for an hour they piped in the really annoying flickering light.
4: It was like a moment of, I don't know, I can't describe that feeling. Uh, when we saw that results, we, we, we found that with just one hour of live flicker treatment in the visual cortex of, of these mice, they show about 50% reduction of the amyloid load. That was, that was the moment it was just, I think it's a once in a lifetime kind of experience.
0: Bruce Yankner thinks that the plenty of other scientists who study other brain diseases will now want to know if the brain can be oscillated back to health.
5: I'm sure many, many groups will now look at models of Parkinson's disease, uh, stroke, and will take the approach that the Tsai group has taken of stimulating gamma oscillations and seeing what it does to the pathology and clinical symptoms.
0: And if the flickering light seems a bit too maddening, there's even some evidence that gamma oscillations get a boost from meditation. I asked Bruce Yankner if he was thinking about making a meditative addition to his Alzheimer's prevention breakfast.
5: (laughs) That would be nice if we could find the time to do all these things.
0: We need more evidence for its effects on Alzheimer's particularly, but meanwhile, Li Hui Tsai and her team hope to get their light procedure approved by the US Food and Drug Administration and begin testing it in people in a few months' time. Thank you to Li Hui Tsai at MIT, whose paper you can find at nature.com slash nature, and to Bruce Yankner. Find his news and views in the same place.
2: Still to come, I predict that I will talk about why physicists love unpredictability. Plus, in the research highlights, a new superconductor that has scientists scratching their heads and the tree-climbing abilities of our ancestors. On the remote island of St Helena, a five-hour boat journey from South Africa into the Atlantic, lies a 19th century graveyard. As Sharmini Bandel discovers, it's fast becoming a site of scientific interest. But it also provides a window into a horrific period in modern history.
1: The cargo was a particularly healthy one, the number of deaths being only about one a day. Two were lying dead upon the deck, and one had the day before jumped overboard.
6: This is from an account written in 1849 by the then Bishop of Cape Town, Robert Gray, describing a visit to St Helena. He's talking about a ship that had arrived at the island packed with slaves.
1: The deck was entirely covered with them. They had a worn look and a wasted appearance, and were moved into the bores like bales of goods, apparently without will of their own.
6: By 1849, when Robert Gray wrote this, slavery had been abolished across much of the world. But slavers were still operating, and Britain had Royal Navy ships patrolling the oceans, acting as an anti-slavery squadron. They would capture ships that had left West Africa bound for South America, and bring them to St Helena, to a place called Rupert's Valley.
7: St Helena is essentially a depot where the naval ships, when they've captured a slave ship, will take that ship and offload its, its human cargo.
6: This is Andy Pearson, an archaeologist based in Cardiff.
7: So Rupert's Valley was basically a refugee camp for freed or liberated African slaves.
6: In 2006, St Helena was making plans to build an airport, its first, and Andy was brought in to make sure the development didn't destroy any archaeological sites. Andy and his team had heard locals talk about slave graves in Rupert's Valley, and they found some under the site of a proposed new road. The road couldn't go anywhere else, so the only choice Andy had was to excavate and move the remains.
7: I think it's been a quite a sort of a personal experience. So what I think we did was we, we spent a lot of time learning about the slave trade as, at the same time as excavating the site. What you have to imagine is that when a slave ship arrives, they are small vessels, absolutely crammed with people. And they're probably about three or four weeks out of Africa at that point. So at the point of arrival, you'll have people who are already dead on the ship. You'll have people who are effectively dying as they're unloaded within the first couple of days they'll be burying significant numbers of people off the ship that's clearly seen in the archaeology it's not a cemetery it's a graveyard so a lot of the, the bodies were going straight into the ground into these kind of tangled group burials
6: most of the bodies were buried without artifacts or possessions but there's a lot of information contained in their bones and some things that were obvious from the moment the team started digging
7: mainly this is a cemetery of children And it shows you just how young and just how brutal the slave trade actually was, that I think the modal age of the children we were digging up was, you know, between 10 and 12. One of the things that the site did was really sort of confirm physically what the historical records um, tell us. It, It showed us a very young population. It shows us a degree of the kind of brutality. We had some protection injuries, some broken ribs, broken hands, that kind of thing, possible um, what are called shackle fractures, which is um, fractures of the limbs because of the shackles that they've been wearing.
6: The site reveals a usually unseen part of the slave trade story, the passage across the Atlantic.
7: What we know about from the St Helena graveyards is this is literally an assemblage of people straight off the slave ships. It's a snapshot of the slave trade, and of the slave ship. You know, we know that these people are living in Africa probably three or four weeks beforehand. That is unique and it's hugely, hugely important.
6: A number of different groups were interested in studying the remains. Some samples were sent to York to look at oral bacteria. Others went to Bristol, where they were studied under the supervision of Kate Robson-Brown. She was interested to see that many of the individuals had unusual teeth. So, for example, a number of individuals had the two upper front teeth filed down to a point. There were some individuals where the top and the bottom front teeth had been um, shaped into these kind of elaborate points and clefts and um, U-shapes. Because these kind of practices were common across Africa, it's difficult to link the individuals to any specific cultural groups. But something else about the teeth could give away their origin. One of the wonderful things about teeth is that as they develop, they take on the chemistry of the water that you drink during that time. And obviously the water that you drink during that time comes from the geology that you of the place that you're living in. One day, this kind of information could help provide clues as to where in Africa the people buried on St Helena's came from. Already, one of Kate's students has been able to cluster groups of people that have similar tooth chemistry, which could indicate that they came from the same place. Another project in Copenhagen took DNA from the tissue inside the teeth and has tried to link individuals with living populations in Africa. It's hard to be certain exactly where these people lived before they were taken away from their homes, or what their lives might have been like. But the more we learn the more we're able to understand and give a human face to the horrors of the slave trade.
7: What also starts to come out is you actually manage to start to see these people not kind of as mass victims, but you can start to see them as individuals. So you start to see these as people who are, you know, they have a sense of culture, of society, of personal aesthetics. So I think that probably for Rupert's Valley, that's been one of the key outcomes is actually to, you know, stop just seeing these innumerable victims of the slave trade and start seeing, seeing its kind of personal human consequences and start seeing these people as, as people.
2: That was Andy Pearson of Pearson Archaeology Limited and before him Kate Robson Brown of Bristol University in the UK. You also heard from Michael Stacey as Bishop Robert Gray. Our very own Ewan Calloway has written a feature on this work which is available online at nature.com forward slash news. Thanks to Shamli Bundel for that package.
0: We'd really like to know what you think of the show, so don't hesitate to send us an email or leave us a review on iTunes. We hit number seven in the iTunes Natural Sciences category last week, and your words and your
2: stars help keep us there. At least that's how we think Professor iTunes creates the rankings.
0: But ratings aside, we love to hear your thoughts anyway, so do just get in touch, podcast at nature.com or at naturepodcast on Twitter.
2: Still to come in the news, American mummy DNA and Mexico thinks about banning research on human embryos. But first, here's Sharmini Bundel with the research highlights.
6: Remember a few months ago how researchers suggested Lucy, the three-million-year-old human relative, died when she tumbled out of a tree? They couldn't say at the time whether Lucy was a habitual tree climber, or only rarely scampered into the branches. But a new study in the journal PLOS One suggests she was built for climbing trees. A team took x-rays of her remains and compared her to fully bipedal species. Lucy's bone strength suggests she would have put more weight on her arms than her legs. So although she walked on two legs on the ground, she often branched out. There's a new superconductor on the scene, the metal bismuth. There's been a long hunt for new superconducting materials, which have no electrical resistance and can keep a current flowing with no power source. A team based in India cooled bismuth crystals to almost absolute zero, where they became superconducting. Usually, superconductors work when electrons partner up, but bismuth has so few free electrons in it, one for every 100,000 atoms, that nobody figured it could superconduct. It isn't the elusive high-temperature superconductor that scientists would really like, one that works at less icy temperatures, but it could help us understand how superconductivity works in the first place. Science has the paper.
2: Science is all about observing patterns in the world around us and coming up with rules that help us predict what might happen next. So, in many ways, randomness seems like it would be a big problem for science. After all, it's unpredictable by definition. But there are experiments and applications where randomness is essential. Take the iconic test of quantum physics, the Bell test. John Bell devised the test in the 1960s to study two particles that have come from the same reaction. Quantum theory predicts the particles should still be linked even when separated over huge distances. Physicist Morgan Mitchell is interested in pushing this prediction to the
3: limits. What you're looking for is evidence that the particles are in some way connected. And that's exactly what
2: the Bell test shows. Measuring one particle instantly affects the distant other, a bizarre behaviour many early critics of quantum mechanics thought was impossible. But how can physicists be 100% sure this is what's happening? What if the particles aren't actually connected to each other but instead have devised a clever system to cheat the test? So physicists have started deploying a series of spot checks to rule out these alternatives.
3: It can can only be checked if you have some way to, in some sense, surprise the particles.
2: And what better way of surprising the distant particles than by using randomness? All you need is to generate a bunch of random numbers that instruct you how to measure the particles. If the way you measure one particle is truly random, the only way the other particle would be able to respond is if the two were really still connected. Easy. My calculator has a random number button. I can generate a sequence of random numbers in no time. But all is not what it seems with
3: these numbers. A sequence of them will look random but they're actually generated by a deterministic process, and if somebody knows what that process is, they will be able to predict the entire sequence. In other
2: words, the random numbers from my calculator aren't really random. And that means the particles in the Bell test could be predicting them ahead of time to cheat the test. But aren't physicists being kind of paranoid? Surely the two particles in the Bell test haven't somehow worked out how calculators generate random numbers.
3: When you consider what is described in the quantum mechanics, which includes this instantaneous communication from one particle to another, then it gives you plenty of reason to become paranoid.
2: Well, fortunately, Morgan has a solution. He's just run a huge version of the Bell test, imaginatively named the Big Bell test, which uses a surprising source of
3: randomness. We realised that it was possible using people to choose the random numbers. They did this in the context of a video game. So you get a score for unpredictability and the point of the game is to try to be as unpredictable as possible.
2: There's no way the particles could predict random inputs entered by gamers across the world. And the game won. That is to say, thousands of people played and their random behaviour helped confirm the weirdness that is quantum mechanics. But randomness isn't just important for demonstrating strange fundamental physics. It's also essential for many vital tasks in computing. Physicist Antonio Asin explains.
8: Perhaps the most important application is for cryptography. So if I want to send you a secret message, I have to use parameters that cannot be predicted by my adversary.
2: If something is random, no hacker will be able to predict it. But how can you be certain your numbers are truly random and that you haven't somehow been tricked? And there are plenty of ways you could be tricked, explains Antonio. Imagine Antonio is selling random number generators. And I want one for my online casino.
8: So what I can do before you come to me, I uh, have a very good random number generator. So I generate these random numbers before you come to me. I copy these random numbers into a box. I write in the box, random number generator. I charge you a lot of money for that. You uh, try to see whether the, the numbers have any pattern, but, but of course they won't have any pattern because they had been generated with a very good random number generator. But of course ran- these numbers are random to you, but they are not random to me because I generated them in advance before you came to me. So then I can go to your webpage page and get all your money.
2: Well, that certainly put me off buying a random number generator from Antonio. But fortunately, there's a solution to make sure that your numbers really are unhackably random.
8: A way to get around all these issues is to use quantum physics.
2: That's because quantum physics is truly random. Compare quantum process with tossing a coin. The coin toss might seem random, but if you knew enough about the coin and the flick, you'd be able to predict the result every time. But many quantum processes are unpredictable no matter how much information you have. In fact, the reason we know quantum mechanics is random is thanks to the Bell test, the very test we were talking about earlier. So we've come full circle. Using randomness in the Bell test allows physicists to surprise the particles when measuring them, making sure they really are connected. But it also proves that the particles themselves have truly random properties. And that means that if you use the Bell test as your random number generator, you're guaranteed that your numbers are unpredictable. Not just to you, but to any potential hacker, no matter how smart. It's a randomness rubber stamp.
8: We know that the Bell inequality violation certifies you that the process that is taking place in your location is random and no one can predict it.
2: So for some experiments, randomness is far from an annoyance. Not only does it help with tasks like encryption and online gambling, but it's also essential for a wide range of computer simulations. Whether you're trying to use human randomness to outsmart quantum particles or quantum randomness to outsmart hackers, unpredictability is incredibly useful. Even so, some people still find randomness a confusing nuisance. But to Morgan Mitchell, getting to grips with the randomness of the world is what
3: makes this research worth doing. Some people like this and some people don't. It's, uh, <laughs> it makes for very interesting science. That was Morgan
2: Mitchell, and before him, Antonio Arsene. Both of them are based at the Institute of Photonic Sciences in Spain. Antonio's got a review all about using quantum for guaranteed randomness out this week. For more on the Big Bell test that Morgan ran, head to thebigbelltest.org. And if you want to know more about this bizarre quantum test, then make sure to check out our video, Quantum Spookiness Explained. Find that at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel.
0: News now and senior reporter Ewan Calloway joins me in the studio. Hello, Ewan. Hello. Now, once again, you've been writing about ancient DNA, not only in the feature that we heard about earlier in the show, that was yours, but also in another case, uh, and you've written a news story this week about some ancient DNA that's been extracted from a mummy.
1: Yep. It's North America's oldest mummy. It was found in a Nevada cave called Spirit Cave. It's known as the Spirit Cave Mummy. And the news is that last month, the, these remains and some artifacts were returned to a Native American group, uh, the Fallon Paiute Shoshone tribe in Nevada, that had long been seeking them from the U.S. government. The U.S. government, which owned the land where the remains were found, sought genome sequencing to determine whether these remains could be characterized as Native American under a law governing repatriation. And the genome said, yes, these remains are more closely related to Native Americans in North and South America than to any other global population It is Native American under this law, and it can go back to the tribe. So my story kind of asks, is this going to be a a growing trend? Are we going to see return of these very old Native American (laughs) remains or ancient human remains from, from America based on genome sequencing?
0: What role in this case did the genome evidence play, given that this tribe lives in Nevada and is based there and has this geographical connection to the cave, which is also in
1: the region? The U.S. government told me it played a critical role in making that determination that it is Native American. You know, this is not a surprising finding that a 10,000-year-old skeleton found in Nevada would be related to contemporary Native Americans. But what's interesting here is that there isn't a special relationship, or at least there doesn't seem to be a special relationship between this individual, this ancient individual, and uh, Native American groups in, in North America. The local tribe has not submitted to DNA sequencing as far as I know. And in fact, the genome analysis showed that this individual is more closely related to a lot of groups in South America than to North America. And scientists you know, are still trying to figure out the, the migrations that led to this pattern. But the U.S. government has determined that anything more closely related to Native Americans, wherever they are in the Americas, is Native American under this law. So it goes back to tribes.
0: As you hinted at, your story looks at how much more common we might anticipate this will become, this kind of DNA evidence making its way into, into cases like this. Do you think we're going to see this a lot more?
1: I wouldn't say a lot more because the remains of this age, especially older than 10,000 years, are exceedingly rare. And a number of them have already gone back to Native American groups um, without genome sequencing. But some scientists have said that we might see maybe kind of Slightly younger remains, but still unaffiliated to tribes being returned on the basis of genome sequencing. And some scientists have said that, that you know, maybe that's not such a bad thing. It, you know, with genome sequencing, they're getting important data that can help understand prehistory.
0: Do you know what the plan for the spirit cave mummy is now? Will it be left where it is, relocated, studied further?
1: I don't know. Neither the tribe nor their lawyers would respond to requests for comment.
0: But as I understand it, the genome will be published um, at some point. It isn't out yet. Now, let's move on to the next story you've got, which which links back to a story that we did in the podcast last week. You mentioned that Mexico was one of the places where some of the mitochondrial replacement therapies have actually been tried already. And this story relates to whether they may go ahead again in Mexico.
1: Yeah, this is a story from my colleague Sarah Reardon in Washington D.C. and she reports on a a law or an amendment to a law being considered by Mexico's government to clamp down on on embryo research and in vitro fertilization. And the
0: law relates to people traveling to Mexico for essentially what relates to fertility tourism.
1: Yeah, I think it's designed to address fertility tourism, which is quite common in in Mexico as as I understand. But the law could – I wouldn't say inadvertently, but the law could have the effect of limiting uh, research on on embryos. So one reading of the law, I believe, is that it would be illegal if it were to pass to create uh, embryonic stem cells from, say, a discarded embryo created through in vitro fertilization, which is – Pretty, which is the, you know, the, the, the way that embryonic stem cell lines are created. It would also prevent the creation of these three-person embryos, which, are, which we talked about last week, to prevent the transmission of, of certain mitochondrial diseases. It would prevent the creation of new embryonic stem cell lines, and scientists think that it would allow them to continue to work with existing embryonic uh, stem cell lines.
0: Has there been some kind of backlash in Mexico towards these slightly experimental procedures that haven't gone through clinics in other places that relate to human embryo research that's provoked this uh, law to be considered?
1: I don't know if this is specifically a a reaction to the deployment of of mitochondrial replacement therapy in Mexico, but I do know that, that Mexico has this kind of international reputation for fertility tourism. And, and, you know, it seems like the law is designed to address that. And when might we know the fate then of the amendment to this law? It's kind of winding its way through Mexico's lower uh, chamber of government. It needs to then go through the legislature and it would also need to be signed by the president. So a long way to go yet.
0: Thanks, Ewan. For more on those news stories, it's nature.com slash news.
1: We're back as usual next week, but the week after
2: that is our festive holiday episode. So stay tuned for all the regular content you know and love, plus a few special gifts from us to you. I'm Adam Levy.
0: And I'm Kerry Smith.
2: The Nature Podcast is supported this week by Altmetric. Citations aren't everything you know. Altmetric can help you monitor all the different attention your work is getting.
0: They believe that making your research visible is key to its success and can help build your professional profile.
2: They track your favourite papers on a range of sources, including blogs, Twitter, in news stories, Reddit, Facebook. Plus, you can add the Altmetric bookmarklet to your browser. When you visit any paper, click it and get all the details.
0: I have become slightly addicted to the bookmarklet. Also, my new favourite word is bookmarklet.
2: Try it out for yourself. Go to altmetric.it and drag the bookmarklet to the toolbar to Get started. Bookmarklet.